Good evening, this is your host, Mr. Dark, bringing you a series of some of the most terrifying, strange, and true short horror stories of crimes, murders, abductions, and experiences. You're listening to the Dark Side Diaries podcast. Earthquake killer, Herbert Mullen. Herbert Mullen was born in Salinas, California on April 18, 1947, and was raised in the Santa Cruz region by his father, who was strict but not abusive. Mullen's father was a World War II hero who worked as a furniture salesman. He would tell Mullen's war stories and teach him how to use a gun. Mullen's grew up very social and was said to have had many friends in school. He was popular, had a girlfriend, and even played varsity football. But life would take a turn for Mullins after graduating from high school in 1965. Mullins' close friend Dean Richardson was killed in a car accident. This would start a series of odd behavior for him. He had built a shrine to his dead friend in his bedroom and began to obsess about reincarnation, religion, and impending natural disasters. Drugs also became a big part of his life. LSD would lead to a deteriorating mental state. His behavior frightened people closest to him, and he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic at 21 years of age in 1969, where he's institutionalized on and off for a period of time. In total, Mullins was committed to five mental hospitals, and he would be discharged after spells and being no harm to himself or others. Nothing was helping Mullins as he complained about hearing voices and adopted many different personas. He spent the following years drifting in California working small-time jobs, where he would constantly reinvent himself, joining different lifestyle activities such as yoga, boxing, and even attempted to join the priesthood. They never lasted long before he began his odd search for the next activity. In 1972, at the age of 25, he began hearing voices telling him an earthquake was imminent and that he could stop by offering up human sacrifices. This is when Mullins would commit his first murder, on October 13, 1972. Mullen was driving when he spotted a 55-year-old homeless man named Lawrence White hitchhiking. He pulled over and pretended to have car trouble, propping his hood open. He convinced White to help him look at the engine where he then beat the homeless man to death using a baseball bat. Mullins drove off and left the scene of the murder. White's body wouldn't be discovered until the next day. It would be two weeks later when Mullins picked up a woman hitchhiking who was heading to an interview. Her name was Mary Gullifoyle, and he stabbed her and killed her inside the car. Dumping her body in the woods by the roadside, he dissected her and hung her intestines in tree branches where he stated he examined them for pollution. She wouldn't be found for several months after that. Investigators were thrown off a bit originally and thought this was a different killer. Around the same time Mullins started his murdering spree, another serial killer was doing the same thing within the same area. His name was Edwin Kemper, and just like Mullins, he suffered from mental illness as well. Four days after killing Mary, Mullins went to see a Catholic priest at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Los Gatos to make a confession. Mullins said that Father Henry Tomei wanted to volunteer to be his next sacrifice. Mullins stabbed him to death when he opened the confessional box and then fled the scene. 
Mullen's murders would continue into January 1973, when he had stopped using drugs and started blaming them for all of his problems. After doing this, he bought some guns and went looking for his old high school friend Jim Gainera that sold him drugs and he felt was to blame for starting him down this path. He drove to a remote area of cabins where he thought Jim was and instead found Kathy Francis who was a mom with two sons. She knew who Mullins was talking about and gave him Jim's new address. Mullins would state that she and her sons volunteered to be blood sacrifices and he shot them, killing all of them. With Mullins' friend Jim right down the road, he would knock on his door and she would kill both Jim and his wife and stabbing their bodies over and over again. When investigators found the bodies of both families, they thought the murders were drug-related since Jim and Kathy were known for selling drugs and had no ties to the other murders Mullins was committing. Around two weeks later, Mullins saw four teenage boys camping in Henry Cowell Redwoods State Park and approached them claiming to be a park ranger. He told them that they were polluting the forest and that they need to leave. When they dismissed him, he pulled out a gun and shot them one by one in their heads. He stated later that he asked them telepathically if he could kill them and that they had all given him permission. His last murder would happen a week later when he would drive past Fred Perez, a 72-year-old retired fisherman who was weeding his lawn. Mullins would make a U-turn, stop, and hold the gun over the hood of his car, shooting Fred in the heart, killing him. Mullins would drive off after. Fortunately, there were several witnesses, one of which memorized Mullins' license plate number to give to police. He was caught and arrested without any resisting. He confessed to all his crimes and claimed voices told him he had to kill to prevent an earthquake. Mullins was sentenced to life in prison and remains at Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California to this day. The strangest part about Mullins' story was a 5.8 magnitude earthquake struck Southern California just eight days after his arrest, causing an estimated $1 million in damages. Mullins would say, We human beings through the history of the world have prevented our continent from cataclysm by murder. In other words, a minor natural disaster avoids a major natural disaster. Mobster Anthony the Ant Spilatro. Born in Chicago, Illinois in 1938, Spilatro at a young age was already partaking in criminal activity. Being one of six children, his parents owned a restaurant that was frequented by mobsters, such as Sam Giancana, Jackie the Lackey Cerrone, and Gus Alex. As a teenager, Spilatro would drop out of high school and begin to engage in theft, burglary, and other petty crimes. By the time he was 21, he had already been arrested 13 times and would catch the eye of mob enforcer Sam Mad Dog DiStefano. DiStefano would bring him into the mafia where he was enlisted to kill two young burglars that ventured into his territory, which earned them a death sentence. Spilatro tortured the two victims before killing them, where he would crush one of their skulls with a vice. He then slit their throats open and dumped them in a car where later the police discovered their decomposing bodies in it. Police would label this the M&M murders for the two victims' names. This particular murder influenced a major scene in the movie Casino, 
The vicious killings won Spilatro a reputation with area mobsters and earned him high recognition in 1963. This would score him a job controlling part of the gang's territory on the northwest side of Chicago. But Spilatro also caught the attention of local law enforcement as well as the media, who began referring to Spilatro as the Ant in reference to his 5'2 stature. And both he and DiStefano were considered suspects in the Eminem murders and quite a few other murders that began to pile up. As Spilatro was becoming a marked man, federal law enforcement worked hard to put him behind bars, but he managed to only get fined and not have to serve any time. Some of these crimes were running a gambling operation out of his house and running a bookmaking racket. Spilatro didn't let the law keep him from conducting business as usual though. Throughout the 1960s, a series of murders occurred in which the mobster was believed to have participated in, but no charges were ever officially made. Spilatro continued to gain fame throughout the Chicago syndicate as both an earner and enforcer, and this would see him put in charge of the Chicago outfit's Las Vegas interest in 1971. With this role, Spilatro would work on the Chicago boss's scheme to embezzle profits from area casinos in Las Vegas. Spilatro was on a sadistic path. At this time, a fracture would start with his Chicago ties as he decided to start his own Vegas outfit called the Hole in the Wall Gang. This slowly eroded the goodwill and ties of his mob superiors by repeatedly violating rules and running his own gang, which burglarized jewelry stores and robbed and beat gamblers. In 1972, he was indicted in the murder of a Chicago real estate broker and sometime mob associate, which originally happened in 1963, and was again noticed for its brutality. The victim had chunks of his body carved out before he was killed. In 1973, after shuttling between Las Vegas and Chicago for the trial, Spilatro was found not guilty. But DiStefano was also indicted and died by means of a fatal shotgun blast before the trial. The FBI had suspicion that Spilatro was one of the killers. By the mid-70s, there were more gangland-style killings in Las Vegas than the previous 25 years combined. In 1974, Spilatro was indicted for the theft from the Teamsters Union Central States Pension Fund, but he beat the charges as well after the principal witness died, also by a shotgun blast. Spilatro found that street crime could generate a healthy profit that he did not have to send back to the Midwest, so he decided to branch out with his gang stealing jewelry and fur and anything of value that he could burglarize from residential or commercial properties, this including hotel casinos. In 1976, he would open a Las Vegas pawn shop called The Gold Rush, where he sold the stolen property. Things would start to change in 1981 when one of the Hole in the Wall gang members became an informant after being caught during a botched robbery. Frank Culotto turned state's witness after he discovered Spilatro had put out a contract on his life. Culotto's testimony, however, proved to be insufficient evidence when prosecutors were unable to link Spilatro to the crime. It was Colada's word against Spilatro, and Spilatro was acquitted. But Spilatro would be shortly indicted again, this time with his Chicago associates for the casino skimming racket. At this same time, Spilatro's situation was not helped by his alleged affair with the wife of his old friend Lefty Rosenthal, who Spilatro was suspected in car bombing him in 1982. By this time, the Chicago syndicate bosses were not pleased with Spilatro, in their opinions, he had made a public spectacle of himself in Vegas, and in doing so had exposed their rackets and cost them millions, and by 1986 the law would catch up to Spilatro. 
On April 25th, both Spilatro brothers were indicted by a Chicago federal grand jury on multiple counts that included attempted extortion and racketeering. On top of it all, Tony Spilatro was scheduled to go on trial again in Las Vegas in late June. The mob decided Spilatro had to go. Joey Awapa, who was one of the leaders of the Chicago outfit, who was headed to prison in the spring of 1986, due largely to testimony from Spilatro's people, Awapa said, I don't care how you do it, get him. I want him out. In June before Spilatro would go on trial, he and his brother Michael were called back to the Midwest for a meeting. The brothers thought that the meeting was for Michael Spilatro, where he would become a made man. Instead, on June 14, 1986, in a hit involving nearly a dozen other mobsters, the brothers were beaten and asphyxiated before being buried in a cornfield in Enos, Indiana. An autopsy identified their cause of death as blunt force trauma and ascertained that they had been dead since June 14th. They were identified by dental charts supplied by their dentist brother, Patrick Spilatro. Forensic pathologist Dr. John Pless testified that autopsies of the Spilatros determined that multiple blunt trauma injuries to the head, neck, and chest most likely the result of punches and kicks, and not baseball bats. Pless added they died partly as a result of their lungs and airways being so full of blood they couldn't breathe. By the time of his death in 1986 at the age of 48, the FBI suspected Palatro was involved in at least 25 murders. This concludes our episode of the Dark Side Diaries. Please remember to follow, like, share, and subscribe for future episodes. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.